Good morning. It's a great privilege for me to be back at Grace. Love coming to Grace. Uh, this is the first time I've had an opportunity to, to speak. Uh, but I will say, on behalf of Palmer Home for Children, thank you for uh, your continued involvement in our ministry. Uh, we have a lot of incredible things going on. Like Jimmy said, two campuses. Uh, been around for 120 years. A foster care program called Jonah's Journey that I think has been highlighted this weekend uh, here. The, the foster program in, in Nashville. And, uh, and we have more children in our care right now, about 130, than we've had in our entire history. And right now we're out of space. So it's a good problem to have. Uh, but anyway, I hope this weekend, I hope you've been able to participate in hearing from other agencies that have been highlighted here, other ministries that are doing incredible work uh, with children, with those who are less fortunate than us. It's a great opportunity that you have to have once a year to get to hear from these incredible people. And uh, it's a blessing to me to get to be here. So um, thank you. Our passage today is, if I can find my glasses, is uh, Exodus 22, 21 to 27. Let's give our attention to God's word. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I'll certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Let's go to the Lord ask him to bless our time this morning. Father, we gather with saints from all over the world this morning to worship you. You're the only one who is worthy of our affection, our praise, what you've done for us, Father, uh, we could never do for ourselves in calling us out of darkness and into the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that Uh, You loved us, that you have mercy on us, that you have shown us your grace. I pray that as we give our attention to your word this morning, that uh, your spirit would speak to us. If these people just hear me, they will have wasted 30 minutes. Uh, Thank you for the worship that we've uh, lifted to you. I pray that uh, you would speak to us now through your word. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into talking about this passage in general, I want to talk about the church in in general. Uh, you know, a lot of times we hear about uh, the social gospel, and, uh, and I've got a couple observations that I want to make uh, about the church, I guess, universal. First of all, it's sometimes the weakest theological systems oftentimes are the greatest champions of humanitarian concerns. Sometimes churches that have thrown out the infallibility of the scripture that embrace a lot of things that this church would not ever stand for. They champion, they're the ones that are out there running the soup kitchens. They're the ones that are out there uh, taking care of the homeless. And, And all that's good. I'm glad they're doing it. The problem is these people need more than a warm bed. They need more than somebody to care for them. They need somebody ultimately who can show them Christ. 
and it can explain to them the gospel. The other side of the story is a lot of churches who have their theology all buttoned up and sewn together and are right in terms of what they believe about the scripture being the infallible word of God, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Oftentimes, they're busy, caught up in church planning all around the world, which is a good thing. They're busy with evangelism, which is a good thing. They're busy supporting seminaries and all these things, which are good things, or sometimes arguing and, and being uh, just about contentious about being right about what they believe. But, but the ones that, that know the gospel sometimes are the very ones that are cool to the humanitarian concerns that surround us. And I think if we want to be a church that truly is, truly mirrors who God is, we want to be a church that has God's heart. And I think this passage begins to open the doors and pull back the layers of what God's heart is and we're going to be his people. The context of this passage, if you know your Old Testament history, uh, you know the incredible story about uh, Israel had been promised through their forefather. God had promised Abraham that out of Abraham, he would make Israel into a great mighty nation. The problem was Israel did not exist at the time. But as God multiplied Abraham's descendants and they grew by the thousands, they wound up, you know, heading to this promised land, but they wound up in Egypt in slavery for 400 years. And in that 400 years, they, they knew what it was like to have the whip across their back and to make mud bricks and to do all this stuff that the pharaohs wanted them to do, and they had no rights. They were, they were, they were uh, like I said, beaten. And God finally rescued them out of that after 400 years by taking Moses in to lead them out. You know the stories about them, all the, the, the plagues that he sent on Egypt and how he parted the Red Sea and they went through. And so now... Now, imagine this huge nation that's camped at the base of Mount Sinai where God has just given them the Ten Commandments. And that's the context. This passage, all that happened in chapter 20, 19 and 20 of Exodus. In this passage, theologians call this passage the Book of the Covenant because just like this baptism this morning, that we got to be a part of was a sign, like Jimmy said, of the covenant of God being placed upon this child. It didn't save him, but it was a sign that he was a part of the covenantal community that we're a part of. And, and God has always dealt with his people through covenants. And, and part of being uh, a covenant God and a covenant people is that we have to understand who our covenant God is and what, what he loves, what he hates how we're to to be like him. And this passage is an explanation, kind of an exposition of the Ten Commandments. He wanted Israel to understand, in this passage, how they were to deal with, in particular, the disadvantaged that they would find living among them as a nation. Who are these disadvantaged? He makes it pretty clear. Do not mistreat an alien. Okay, an alien, stranger, a sojourner. These were people that, they weren't true Israelites. They found them, maybe they had been inhabitants of the land that Israel would conquer and they were leftover remnants of the people who had been there or maybe they were people that were nomads traveling through, but they weren't Israelites. 
And because they weren't Israelites, they didn't have the rights and privileges that the Israelites had. So that was one class. And we can get into a political debate right here and talk about who are the aliens today. They're all debating about building a wall and all this stuff, but they are aliens among us from a lot of different nations. And we see that on television every day. So anyway, the strangers or the sojourners or the aliens, the widows, we all know what widows are. Widows are women who have lost their husband. Orphans, in this day, and I'm sure according to this definition, the orphans were children who had lost their mother and father. Uh, today, there aren't a lot of those orphans left. There still are. There are a lot of them. I'll tell you about in just a second. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of orphans we call social orphans, they are fatherless. They, they may have a mom or a dad. They might know who dad is. A mom may be in jail or whatever, but they don't, they're still are orphans. And the last category is the poor. The people who don't have the financial resources to take care of themselves. <clears throat> why were they considered, why were these four classes of people considered disadvantaged? Well, in that day and time, and it's still true today, it's really not that different. In that day and time, these classes of people didn't have the means to take care of themselves. If you were a sojourner, a lot of times a widow, an orphan, you couldn't provide for yourself. You didn't have a covenantal head over it. You weren't part of a family. You didn't have a covenantal head that would protect you when people would try to take advantage of you. And that was a huge problem of, of, of these classes of people being exploited. Not only not being taken care of, but being exploited. They were defenseless. They didn't have families. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have resources. They had no one to care for their interests. Now, when you think about, okay, the title of this, uh, I mean, the, the theme of this conference, which I think is great, that Jonathan came up with is, uh, I keep wanting to say the lost children of Shelby County, but it's the forgotten children of Shelby County. It could be the lost, that would work. My question that I, that I think that we have to answer first is, where are they? I was, had an opportunity, I'm going to show a couple of pictures here. I had an opportunity about a month ago, I was asked to go to Iraq of all places to uh, help vet or help set up uh, a, a safe house for girls who had been sex trafficked by ISIS soldiers, if you can imagine. Um, while I was over there, it became, this is my first trip to Iraq, uh, while I was over there, it became really clear to me that the, the widows, the poor, the sojourners, and the orphans, they're easy to spot in Iraq. Here's a picture of these four women with their brown stuff on, their little, I guess those are burkas or something, but uh, they, they were all from some tribe, but they had been displaced by ISIS. All four of them, there were four sisters, all four of them had been married. Uh, three of them are widows now because ISIS killed their husbands. And they had about 10 little children running around. And their 90-year-old mother was also in. They're, they're living inside of a shell of a building because they don't have any other place to live. They have no electricity. They have no water. And I'm not trying to get you to sign up to go to Iraq. That'll be next month when I come back. But um, I'm just trying to make a point. They're easy to spot. Show us the next picture. This is where they're living. There are all these buildings. You, you can spot these buildings all over Iraq because they're, this is one that the, the, the refugees haven't really filled it up yet. But most of these shells of buildings where this construction was going on, the construction stopped when the crisis with ISIS started. And so as the refugee camps is filled up, 
all these refugees are now just moving into these uh, skeletons. This is a refugee camp up in Duhuk, about 20 miles south of the Turkish border. A refugee camp of 27,000 Yazidis. And inside of this camp, uh, I met numerous widows, uh, numerous orphans. I, I was in a tent that had, there was, there was probably a 10 by 20 tent out in the middle of a desert. As you can see, it's like being on the surface of the moon. Um, and in these tents on these little slabs of concrete with no air conditioning, no anything, no water, and three families lived in there. And there was one woman in there who was a widow. And when ISIS came into their Yazidi village, her husband was uh, a policeman. And they shot him. And as he laid there bleeding and she was standing next to him, the soldiers came and raped her in front of him. So the last thing he saw was his wife being raped and then she was taken as a sex slave. The next picture shows a little boy and the picture's out of focus because I couldn't really say, hey, stop and pose and let me take a picture of your disfigured ankle because this little boy, Isis killed his mother and father. He, he witnessed that and then they broke his ankle and it was left to heal like that. I... That is a whole nother story. And I'm not telling you those things just to say, hey, I went to Iran or Iraq. They're easy to spot. The widows, the orphans, the poor, they're easy to spot in Iraq. But you know what? They're pretty hard to find sometimes here. Where are they? They're here. They're living in families that are exceptionally dysfunctional, that are plagued by alcohol and drug abuse, uh, they're plagued by fatherlessness, they're, they're plagued by transgenerational patterns of dysfunction and sin that keep these families from ever moving forward, and what we are doing for them is not working, and we should see that. Every night when you turn the news on in Memphis, you should know that what we're doing is not working. Because it's just repeating itself, it's repeating itself, it's repeating itself. If you don't know where these people are, there's some organizations that could help you out, and they're right here. Sue Parker, I'm, I'm sure she's in here with Life Choices. Sue, she knows where these families are because she works with them every day. Bethany Christian Services, they know where these, these people are because they work with them every day. Come talk to me. I work with these families every day. And the thing is, we can't do it by ourselves. What I think has happened, though, for us in the church, and I saw it personally myself, because I grew up in Clarksville, Mississippi, a little delta town. My family didn't have a lot of money. We went to church every Sunday. Um, went to Ole Miss. Shout out, hotty toddy to all you Ole Miss people there. Um, but uh, when I came to work for Palmer Home 18 years ago, we were building that campus down outside of Hernando. And for five years, I was... I was working for Palmer Home, but I wasn't working with Palmer Home kids. And after we got that campus built, I was the director. And so I started having children come to that campus. And, I'm, and I've been to grad school. I have a master's in marriage and family therapy. I'd done all this counseling. And all of a sudden, I'm going, who are these people? Nothing that I've studied in school has prepared me for any of this. Where do these people come from? Then I, then I meet these families that they're a part of. Because you have to work with, you work with the kids. You work with these mom or dad or grandmama, whoever brings them in. And it's crazy. And I realized that I don't think my parents intentionally isolated me or insulated me from 
these people. Because I know Clarksdale probably had to be full of these. And I don't think we do that. I don't think we isolate ourselves as Christians, but I think we are isolated. Because I'm not sure that most of us could probably name five people who fall in these categories that we rub shoulders with every day. I hope you can, and I'm not trying to, you know, I don't want to be the hated guy that came in and said a bunch of stuff, but I'm just trying to be realistic because I think that's realistic. If we sit there and think, okay, who do I know that is, is fatherless? Who do I know that is really poor and destitute? Probably know, you know, widows are a little bit easier to find. What about those aliens? The only ones I know build houses in my neighborhood in Oxford. or the lady that cleans my house. And I'm telling you, this week, I've been convicted that I've never talked to her. I don't speak Spanish, but uh, I could do something. We don't see them, but they're around us. They're defenseless. And God's called us as his people to be their defenders. And I think that we see this in three different ways in this passage. We should be defenders of the defenseless because... First of all, it's not an option. God hadn't made it an option. In this passage of the book of the covenant, in chapters 20 and, uh, 20, or 21 and 22, up until this point, the, uh, Moses, or I think Moses wrote this, somebody did. Uh, the, whoever wrote it, the Hebrew is written in a form that's more principles, just kind of general principles to help apply the Ten Commandments into general things in everyday life. The interesting thing about this passage is that beginning uh, in, in verse 21, the, the verb tense changes to an imperative form. Do not mistreat an alien. Do not take advantage of, uh, of an orphan or a widow. Um, and, and, and so all of a sudden, if you're hearing this and you're in Israel, you're going, wait a minute, What? It was shocking because all of a sudden you were being commanded to do something. And the reason was because Israel, as God's people, they had to be, they had to take on God's character. They had to love the things that God loved. If you flip back over to Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. They're about to hear, God's about to give them the Ten Commandments. And this is, they, they, Moses had to have them purify themselves. They couldn't touch the mountain or they would die because that's where God was and it was holy. And, uh, and God says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God said, I did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. You were enslaved in Egypt, and I went in, and I defeated them, and I, I carried you out. And I could have chosen anybody in the world to be my people, but I chose you. And you had nothing to do with it. And you know what? That's right where we are. you didn't have a whole lot to do with saving yourself. I can promise you that. You didn't have a whole lot to do with the parents that you were blessed with or the situations that you grew up in. For most of us, 
And I, and I know that there are plenty of you out there that have had very difficult times. But for most of us, we have been blessed. Our lines have fallen in pleasant places. And all of us who are Christians, what we have spiritually has been given to us by Christ's death on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins that we have been singing about and, and, and praying and thankful. We couldn't do that for ourselves. And he's done that for us. And God says, it's my people. I've done all of this for you now. I'm making you a holy nation. I'm making you like me. I'm making you set apart from my purposes. And part of that is this is how I want you to treat people. So this is not a suggestion to take care of these people. It's a command. Secondly, we should defend, be defenders of the defenseless because God has made it both a corporate and an individual command. One of the interesting features of this passage, that it, the, the, the formulation uh, of how the, the author addresses Israel is the same that's used in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments where they are addressed corporately and they are addressed individually. Because we're saved, we become a Christian. Yes, I am an individual Christian, right? But I'm also connected to this organism called the church. And I have, as a Christian, I have individual responsibilities to mirror God's image in the world, to be obedient to him. But I also have a corporate responsibility to you guys. We have a corporate responsibility. And you know what? Every time we get a check from you guys, I know that you're taking care of it because I know what this church supports. And like I said, I appreciate it. The problem is... Most churches aren't like this church. Today, who has become the primary defender of these children, of the defenseless? Who has? The government. It's because the church has capitulated its responsibilities given to it by God and is in the past, early in, in our nation's history, and we'll just talk about our nation's early in our nation's history, Christians started hospitals, they started orphanages, they started all kinds of stuff to be involved in mercy ministry. And over the years, all that has just about stopped. So much so in regard to forgotten children that now the government is the, the, not the sole provider of childcare, but you know about 95% of what is being done for children has been done by the U.S. government. That should, just think about that for a second. and Think about how messed up that is. The government's answer to fatherless children is foster care. And there's some great foster families out there, but as a whole, it's a broken system. And I'm not here to, you know, run it in the ground. It's a broken system because it was never intended to be a long-term solution. Children were, initially when foster care was created, children would go into a foster family for six months at the longest while their families rehabbed from whatever it was they had a problem with. Well, uh, there are very few people that are gonna rehab from, alcohol abuse in six months, or drug abuse in six months, or molesting children in six months. These problems of transgenerational dysfunction and sin don't get fixed in six months. And so what happens, the child gets bumped into another family. The child's also already had all kinds of childhood trauma. And if, if you want to read some scary stuff, go Google early childhood trauma and go read... Uh, 
any of those studies that you find, but they've been, you know, it's a hot topic in the childcare world now that early childhood trauma, that doesn't, it doesn't just affect the child emotionally, but it affects how they physically develop. It affects how their brains form. And so all these children that are in these crazy situations, they're experiencing all this trauma, and then they get thrown into foster care, and they stay there, and then they get thrown over here to this family and to this family, and it goes on and on and on. And it's not a fault of those who work in foster care, it's a fault with the system. And it's so messed up that there even is a group of attorneys that have gone from state to state to state called Children's Rights, where they go and find one child in the state that they can sue the entire state foster care. Tennessee's been sued, Mississippi's been sued, just two of the 12 states. It's easy pickings. But the, the government has stepped up to do what the church and God's people should be doing. There are two reasons what, that we see in this passage why Israel, both corporately and individually, were to take this command seriously. Um, verse 21, do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. God says, your regard, you should be concerned about these people because you know what it's like to be them. You've, you've, been, you've been in a slave. You've been in a situation where you didn't have rights. You didn't have people to protect you. You were just stuck. And you ought to know what it's like to not have resources or to not have protection. And he also tells them that they should have regard for these people that should be stimulated by the fact that God's essential nature models not only his intolerance for injustice, but also it, it, it models his compassion. There are things that we should be really ticked off about. And I know that there are. But sometimes we're not. Because God gets ticked off about stuff. And there should be people that we should feel great compassion for because God is so compassionate. And it, it's so much here that he says, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. You know what? I'm not a smart guy, I'm not real sharp, but that's not a veiled threat. It's right out there. If you don't do it, not only am I commanding you to do it, not only am I commanding you as an individual and corporately, but I'm saying if you don't do it, I'm going to make you like them. Remember what it's like in Egypt? If you become Egyptians, I'm going to treat you like Egyptians. Job said in Job 31, 16 to 23, I love this passage. It's kind of hard, it's kind of long, but just hang with me. Job says, if I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth, I reared him as would a father, and from my birth, guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for a lack of clothing or a needy man without garment, and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, 
knowing that I had influence in court, then, then, he goes, if I've done any of those things, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God. And for the fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. He goes, I couldn't take advantage of the fathers. I had to, I had to, to defend them. I had to, to provide for the widows. I had to do it because I knew that God would destroy me. For the fear of his splendor. What a great phrase that is. Psalm 64.4 tells us something else about God. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord. And rejoice before him, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. It's a simple application. As individuals, as the corporate body of Christ, if we're to be holy and pure before God, which he's called us to be, then... We need to take seriously the care of those who are defenseless around us, the strangers, the widows, the orphans, and the poor. Lastly, God has not made this an option. He's made it a corporate and an individual command. Lastly, we should be defenders of these defenseless in order to bring them into the kingdom of God. The Hebrew word that's translated alien in this passage uh, was a word that became synonymous with the word proselyte. There were people, as Israel would conquer the land that God would give them, there were people that would wind up being in their land who weren't Israelites. And they were disadvantaged. And they were allowed to live in Israel and were supported by Israel and loved by Israel and taken care of by Israel in order that they could come to love and know this God, this one true God who was the God of Israel. Evangelism and mercy ministry aren't two separate things. They go hand in glove. We've all heard the phrase, people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. When we have children that come to Palmer Home, a lot of times those children, they've had, got all this trauma, they've got all this stuff, they're scared to death about being there. They go into a cottage with Christian house parents who are our staff, and we do cottage devotions and all that like you do at home. And a lot of times some of my house parents say, you know, I just don't get it. You know, they don't pay attention. They, they don't, they don't want to be a part of our, you know, scripture reading and all that. And I'm going to go, you know what? They can't hear any of that. They can't hear any of that. One, they don't know you. They don't trust you. Right now, they think this maybe is the, the next stop on my way to my next stop on my way to my next stop as I run through the system. But by a time or step, we've got to be the hands and feet of Christ to these people. We have to show them the love of Christ. Just don't tell them about the gospel. Show them the gospel with how you treat them. Love them. And it's hard because they are not lovely. They are not easy to love, a lot of them. 1 Peter 2, 12 states, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
There are a lot of organizations that use mercy ministry first as they care for the needs of people in order to have an opportunity to build a bridge to them of the gospel so that they can walk over that bridge to Christ. <clears throat> so this, I'm, t- I'm telling you a story about Palmer. I'm, I'm, I could tell some of their stories if I knew them, but back in the 1930s, uh, this woman sent a letter to the head matron at Palmer Home. Uh, she said, I have three children, I'm a widow, my husband recently died, and I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I've been given two or three months to live. Would Palmer Home take my children? And so they wrote her back and said, sure, and they arranged to meet her at the train station in Columbus, Mississippi. So the day arrived, the woman showed up, she had two toddlers and, and, and literally a baby, uh, maybe her husband hadn't been that, dead that long, but she, had, she was holding a baby. And um, the head matron from Palmer was there, and uh, they, you know, discussed things that you have to discuss when you're placing your children with us. And then the mom told her little boys goodbye and then kissed her other child and handed it to the head matron at Palmer And she said this, teach my children to meet me in heaven. We published that story in a centennial version of a magazine that we produce. And after about six months after that, that magazine went out to some of our donors and uh, supporters, um, we got a letter from this woman in New York State. And she said, I saw the article about the women, about the children being dropped off back in the 30s. Um, she said, I'm writing you to tell you that Palmer Home kept its end of the story. You see, I married one of those little boys that was dropped off at that train station that day. He said, Palmer Home kept its end of the deal. Palmer Home taught my husband to be a godly husband to me and to be a godly father to our children and to be a godly member of our church and our community. He said, he's dead now and he's gone to be with Jesus, but I just wanted you to know. Their palm room kept us in the deal. Happens all the time. When we reach out in mercy, when we reach out in love to care for those, to show them, to be the hands and feet of Christ to them. And the question that we have to ask ourselves today, are we willing to do that? church has been given a lot. This church does a lot. But do you know where these people are? Do you know where they are? You can adopt. You could foster. Call Bethany. Call Sue Parker. You want to be a house parent? I need them every day. Hardest staff person we have to hire. If you want to do it vocationally, come work for me. Give to this church. Because this church, like Jimmy said, is all paid for. It's going out of here. It comes in here and lands and it goes back out. Give. Serve. Tim Keller writes, Mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of being a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not optional 
or in addition to being a Christian, rather a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of true faith. Let me end by reading what Jesus had to say about this. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will reply. I tell you the truth. Whoever, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, you have blessed us beyond blessing. You have drawn us to your son Christ, and through him uh, we have no fear of our own sinfulness because we know the forgiveness that we have by his shed blood. We know, sitting here this morning, that we have been given so much. And I pray that you would give us the courage to step into the messiness of these lives that are around us. Step into the courage to trust you with safety when it calls us to go into a place that's not safe. To trust you for provision. Help us to be the people that you've called us to be, people who truly care about those who suffer around us. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.